0: I'm back. I was going to say, I almost lost my voice voice during the music. It was so awesome. So awesome. I think we should give them a round of applause. Man. They work so hard, and uh, they lead us in worship every Sunday, and it's a privilege to be here and to sit here and to sing along with them. So this past week, something really exciting happened, and I want to share that with you. This past week, the Grace House, formerly known as the Azil Home, is now officially under construction awesome right there's a picture from that's only a few there's a lot more people there but that even looks like a lot there that's a picture from this past week on wednesday morning we had a ceremony and we did the groundbreaking for the grace house which if you're in haiti don't say groundbreaking apparently in creole that kind of means earthquake Um, So as I was talking, I had to quickly change my vocabulary to installment. Um, So just a little word of advice. But while we were there, it was incredible. Our team that just got back last night safe and sound and had an incredible trip, Uh, they were there. There were local officials there, judges, jurors, as well as the mayor. And also, the North American and Haitian leadership of Mission of Hope was in attendance, and it was a beautiful, incredible, incredible moment where we put the first bricks on the corner of the home, and officially now the home is under construction. And they made me promise the local officials, the Haitian people, as well as the leadership for Mission of Hope made me promise to thank you. Thank you for your prayer, thank you for your support. Thank you for your excitement. They told me time and time again that if it wasn't for you all, if it wasn't for you taking up this charge with passion and raising so much money and praying so fervently for the home that we wouldn't be where we are right now. So thank you. And whether you're sitting there and you say, well, I didn't really do much. I only did a little bit or I wasn't able to give. It doesn't matter. This church did this together. We all did it as a community. And you were involved in the process. And you may never see the result. You may never see the effect. But know that this home that you were a part of and you will continue to be a part of is changing people's lives. It is giving people a home. It is changing their physical condition, but not just their physical condition, but their spiritual one. And you get to be a part of that. And that will always be true. So thank you. Thank you. And they want to thank you. But I've been asking myself... What is it that made Rio and this church take this home up with such excitement and support and with prayer? Because I'll tell you, this has been one of the joys of ministry for me, to see you all truly an exceptional, incredible, incredible church. And the way that you guys came around this home and supported it and were excited about it was amazing. And I think what made this happen, and will continue to make it happen, is more than just The cutting of my hair and the seeing Tom change his haircut since he was two years old. It's more than that, right? And Tom's back, if you notice, the hair's back to where it's always been. And mine is not. But it's more than that, right? The catalyst... (laughs) Oh, man. The catalyst of it was more than just the haircut. It was more than just the laughs, and though we had a lot, and that's an important part, it was that you empathized. You sat there and you imagined what it would be like for yourself, or for your grandmother or for your grandfather to be living in those conditions where you're sleeping on the street with no food and nowhere to rest your head, waiting day in and day out, wondering when you're going to die. What it would be like to have no government programs, no organizations that can come help you. What it would be like to stand at the threshold of your door and your family tell you it's time to go because you're using too many resources and we can't feed everybody. And so you have to go wander off And find somewhere to spend the last few days or weeks of your life. You empathize, you put yourself in their shoes, and you imagined. And what happened was, is when you empathize, it drew you to action. It wasn't just sympathy, right? It didn't just feel bad, but you tried to relate, you tried to understand, you tried to feel the pain, feel the struggle, imagine the situation, and it moved you to want to do something. You tried to see life through their eyes without judgment. And I think that's what fueled the grace house. That's what has got us to this point here today, and will get us to the point in January where we're cutting the ribbon and moving in residents. And so, this morning, what I want to do as we work through chapter 9 of Luke, as we've been studying through the book and the rhythm of grace, I want to really assess ourselves. I want to be honest, I want to be open, I want to be vulnerable. Because when we look out at our world, you could fill in the blank of any organization. Four Kids, Trees of Hope, Mission of Hope, Hope South Florida, Taylor's Closet, Dalit Freedom Network, Invisible Children, Charity Water, put in your favorite organization. They all began because somebody or a group of people empathized with people that were struggling and suffering. But see, empathy isn't just supposed to be the part of the founding of an organization or the beginning of a project. It is to be the way in which we live our lives, the way in which we interact with people, how we are every day in and out. And so as we look through this passage that may be familiar to many of you where Jesus sends out the 12 and the feeding of the 5,000, I think we're challenged to look inward and to say, are we empathetic? And the answer is yes, yes. With the grace house we see that but are we empathetic in the way that jesus is every day in every situation when god puts people in our lives that are suffering and struggling so i want to pray for us and then we're going to jump right into luke chapter 9 let's pray lord we thank you for this morning and the privilege of coming before you with freedom to be able to worship we thank you for your word that is true And God, we thank you that you're patient and you're gracious with us. And we just pray for our brothers and sisters in Haiti that are worshiping you this morning. We pray for the construction and development and sustaining of the Grace House. We know it's not our house. It's not Mission of Hopes. It's yours. It's your vision. It's your heart. And we thank you that we get to be a part of it. And so we pray this morning as we look at Luke 9 that you would not only show us truth, but you would give us grace and ability to live truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So starting in verse 1 of Luke 9, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, you can check out the screen. It says this, And he, Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. This is interesting because up to this point in Luke's gospel, the first eight chapters. The disciples have been companions since they were called. They were companions of Jesus. They were alongside of him, supporting him, watching and learning. They've seen incredible things. They've learned a lot, but they haven't been sent out yet. They're not missionaries yet. They haven't done evangelism by themselves yet. And here it is. Here's the chance. Jesus told them a long time ago that they're going to be fishers of men. And here's where we see that come true where they are sent out to do the ministry that Jesus has been modeling, word and deed ministry, caring for the physical needs of those suffering and caring for the spiritual needs of others as well. And so they're sent out, and Jesus gives them a few regulations. In verse 3, he says to them, "'Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics.'" So he tells them to bring nothing, which seems weird because you'd think that they would bring stuff because that would make them more comfortable, maybe more efficient, maybe more effective. He says, don't bring anything. Don't even bring an extra pair of clothes. No money, no food, no clothes, no bag, no staff, nothing. Just go. So why did Jesus tell them to not bring anything? I think he's teaching them a deeper point here, and it's that you don't need anything. To do the ministry of the kingdom. You don't need anything to live the life that I'm calling you to live. You don't need a slick presentation. You don't need a really well-developed, beautiful service. It's not that those things are bad, but you don't need them. You don't need a really well developed, memorized gospel presentation. You don't have to have a certain personality. You don't have to have a certain set of skills to serve somebody. You don't even have to really understand the dynamics of the culture or the city or of the people that you're speaking with. You just have to go. And those things aren't bad, but they're not essential. Jesus says, don't bring anything, nothing. Just go and be faithful, be compassionate, have conversations, and you will see that the Lord is with you, and you will accomplish great things. And then he gives them a second regulation before they go, and he says, in verse 4, in whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And this seems pretty straightforward. When you go to a town, the first place that you stay, when you stay there, just stay the entirety. So if you're in a town for a week, the first home you go to, just stay there. And if somebody rejects you or doesn't invite you in or they don't want anything to do with you, just, we'll modernize it, brush the dirt off your shoulders, and don't worry about it. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting you. message they're not it's not your fault you didn't do anything wrong but there's something deeper behind this because in this culture this is a culture of hospitality so it was culturally accepted and really mandated that you be hospitable and so what that meant was if a stranger comes to your door or if you meet a stranger in your town or your city you are obligated to bring them into your home you should feed them you should give them a place to stay it's a wonderful thing However, it was abused. It was manipulated. And what would happen is businessmen and religious leaders and people traveling from town to town would abuse this really good and healthy cultural tradition. And what they would do is, as they were in the town, they would try to find better accommodations. So they would meet different people each day, and they'd realize that they have a bigger home, maybe a nicer bed, better food. And they would say that they have nowhere to sleep, So that they can continue to stay in nicer and nicer places. And this was normal. This is what everyone did. This was accepted as a common practice. This was an abuse of their culture. And what's interesting here is that Jesus tells them, the first place you stay, don't leave. Whether it's nice or whether it's not. Even if you think you're being rude because you're staying in one place for too long and they have to feed you for an entire week or give you a place to stay, don't leave because this culture of hospitality is a wonderful thing, and don't abuse it. Don't act like everybody else. I know everybody does this, and everybody accepts this as okay, but you're not going to. Because Jesus understands something, and he's telling them something, and it's that as a follower of me, you don't disrespect, abuse, manipulate, or just accept culture the way that it is. Because if you do, if it's unhealthy and if it's wrong, it will create disinterest in the message that you're sharing. It will call your motivation into question. It will make people look at you and say, you're no different than anybody else. Why should I listen to anything you have to say? Because as Christians, we know that we're called to respect, to create, and to redeem culture. And so the question is that we have to ask ourselves as we slowly work through these passages, what are the things in our culture that are acceptable and normal and even defined as good? That are not acceptable, they're not the heart of our Savior, that are not right. And these are generalizations, but I want to share a few. I think we live in a culture of sympathy. We feel bad for people, but it's not empathy. And we know that as Christians we're called to be empathetic. We live in a culture that throws money at problems, but we're not only called to give financially, we're called to also give our time and give our skill, give our talent. We live in a culture that sees and supports the government as being the arm of mercy for the poor but the church is supposed to be the arm of mercy to the poor we live in a culture where cohabitation and sex before marriage is not only normal and acceptable it's actually defined as good we live in a culture where abortion is acceptable drunkenness is encouraged and porn is harmless We live in a culture where bipartisan and hostile politics is seen as the status quo. And we're okay with that. Questionable business practices are defined as how you do business. Seeking to achieve and to gain bigger and better is the American dream. And racial injustice is overblown. These are just a few and we could add many, many more that we in our culture accept as right or normal or we're okay with at least, but they're not right and they're not okay and they're not the heart of our savior. And just as Jesus looks at disciples and says, don't abuse, don't manipulate and don't act like everybody else in certain things, the same is true for us. And so Jesus warns them and he says, don't fall into the traps and the temptation of the city. Don't marry the culture in the ways that you shouldn't. And when you go to a city, You show them what a healthy practice looks like. You show them how culture should look. And so they go in verse 6. They depart. They go through all the villages and they preach the gospel. And healing happens everywhere. And we know that they were really effective because Herod, the Tetrarch, he's the son of Herod the Great. He's the Tetrarch, which means he's a ruler of a fourth of the province. He's a ruler of a, a large area. He hears about what's happening. In verse 7, it says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So Herod, the ruler, begins to hear of what's happening. So we know that whatever the, the disciples were doing, the ministry of word and deed, compassion and conversation, the ministry they were doing in all these towns was catching fire. People were being healed and people were coming to believe. And it began to create such a stir that the ruler hears about it. And people begin to question, what's happening? Did John, whose head was just previously cut off, did he rise from the dead? Isn't an old prophet, is it Elijah... And Herod's bloodlust is beginning to be aroused again because he sees a threat. He begins to get nervous and he says something that's paradigmatic for the entirety of Luke's gospel. He says, who is this about whom I hear such things? Translation, who is Jesus? Who is this person and these people that are following him? So the scene changes and time has passed and the disciples are coming back after weeks or months of doing the ministry that Jesus has sent them to do and they're excited to come back and spend time with Jesus and to relax, to share the stories. And in verse 10, it says, on their return, the apostles told him, Jesus, all that they had done. And he took them and he withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. So they're back. They've come back. They're exhausted. They're tired. It's been a long period of time. And they're just excited about coming and spending time with Jesus, sharing with him all that's happened, all the great and amazing things, the healing, the people that have believed, and to just rest. There's a little bit of a wrench in their plans. In verse 11, it says, when the crowds learned it, that every, the band is back together, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. And so what happens is they come back together and they're going to go retreat and they're going to rest and they're going to refresh and they're going to relax. And the crowd hears that they're back together and they've heard what's been happening. And they're curious. They're interested. There's nothing better to do than go see Jesus and the apostles and see what's he going to say? What's he going to do? Is someone going to be healed? Is there going to be a miracle? And so the crowds begin to gather. They don't go to the crowds. The crowds come to them it seems as if they don't care if they're being rude or intrusive. Even though the disciples and Jesus are going to go retreat and withdraw, they come and they follow him. And you can imagine the disciples are maybe a little exasperated at this point. This wasn't in the plan. But Jesus does his Jesus thing, right? The crowds come to him and he shares and he loves. It says that when they came to him, he welcomed them and he spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those Who had need of healing. So he shares with them the message of the kingdom and also shows them mercy and compassion. And it says in verse 12 Now the day began to wear away, so it's getting late, it's been a long day. And the 12 came to him, to Jesus, and they said, Send the crowds away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. And as it's consistently said, and as Tom says, we have to slow down. We just read through it easily. We've heard this story many times, and so we go right through it. But the, the disciples are looking, they've just been doing ministry for the entire day. They've been doing it for weeks and for months, and they wanted to withdraw, and the crowds came, and Jesus did the Jesus thing where he loves on people, and he's compassionate, and he shares the message, and it, but it's been a long day. And the sun's going down. Everybody's hungry. Everybody's tired. And the disciples, the apostles, go to Jesus and say, Listen, everyone's hungry. Everyone's tired. So let's just tell them go to the villages around here. I'm sure they can find somewhere to sleep. I'm sure that they can find something to eat. And then maybe we could eat as well. And maybe we could sleep because we're kind of tired. But Jesus always does what we don't expect. He says, well, you give them something to eat. And they were really excited about that, obviously. They're like, oh man. But then here they have, they have an issue. They say, we have no more than five loaves and two fish on a unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, which really means, Jesus, we don't have a lot of food. Obviously, we have barely enough for us to eat anything. And remember a back. A little bit earlier, a few months ago, when he told us to go with no money and nothing, we don't have any money, so we actually can't go buy food. So let's go with plan A, where we'd say, hey, everybody, go to the towns, fend for yourself. Hopefully you find some food. I feel bad that you're hungry. I feel bad that, you, you know, you don't have anywhere to sleep. We're in a desolate place. Just go. So plan A works, right? We're good with that, Jesus? So then we can kind of eat and relax as well. Now, I was thinking through this, and, and it's interesting. These disciples have just returned from doing miracles, healing people, sharing the gospel. Amazing things have happened to where it's reached the ears of Herod. They have seen Jesus raise people from the dead. They have seen Jesus make lame people walk, cast demons out of somebody and throw the demons into pigs that then run and jump off a cliff, which must have been hilarious, but maybe sad for the people that own the pigs. They've seen Jesus stop a storm, and they show no inclination, there's no hint, that they think that Jesus can do anything with this food. It seems like that would be the easiest thing, multiplying some bread and some fish, calming a storm, raising the dead, casting out demons, making some more food. It's like he could just bring, the you know, back in the Old Testament, bread came down from heaven, I'm sure he could do it again. They don't show any inclination that they think Jesus is going to do a miracle or that they even say, Jesus, hey, why don't you just, can you fix this? So the question is, did they really just misremember that Jesus had the ability to do miracles or do they doubt that he's able to do miracles or are they just tired? Are they just like, we've done enough. It's been months. It's been a long period of time. And today we just wanted to relax. And the crowds came. And we were okay with that to serve. But now the sun's setting. We're tired. They're tired. We're hungry. They're hungry. Let's just close up shop. And if you want, we'll start tomorrow. But today, let's just put a hold on it. I don't know, but I think that's how the text reads. They're exhausted. They're tired. And we know that this is, could be true because we're dense people as humans, right? It takes us an extraordinary long time to actually implement things that we're learning. It's frustrating. So we relate with them. But Jesus is very gracious and he's very patient. And he doesn't scold them. He doesn't ridicule them. He doesn't put them down. He just says, here's, here's what I'm gonna tell you to do. Just trust me, just follow me and you're gonna see what's gonna happen. And in verse 14, we know what happens for there were about 5,000 men, which means there was probably about 10,000 plus people because there was women and children there as well, but they only counted the men. So there's about a village there. Imagine 10,000 people and you have two pieces of fish and five loaves. And he said to the disciples, have them sit in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and he gave them to disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. So Jesus has performed another miracle. Everybody eats, everybody's satisfied, 10,000 plus people. He has fed them with five pieces of bread and two fish. And maybe you're sitting there and you're like, this book is getting wild. I mean, he's raising people from the dead, he's calming the storm, and now he's feeding 10,000 people with this amount of food. I mean, come on, this is kind of ridiculous. And Tom said last week something I thought was great. He said, Is it really? I mean, if Jesus really is the Son of God, if he really is God in the flesh, is it ridiculous? that he would do miracles? That he would do things that we're incapable of doing? I think the answer is no, and that may feel like a cop-out, and that's fair. And you can't prove that Jesus multiplied this amount of food and fed 10,000 people, just like you can't prove that he didn't. But I think the important thing, if you're struggling and if you're doubting and if you're skeptical, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you're working through this and you're trying to process how these things are possible. You have to presuppose that he is, in fact, who he says he is and deal with the entire book. And so be patient. Work with us as we're going through the book. Because if he is the Son of God, it would be weird if he didn't do miracles. That would be confusing if someone says that they're God in the flesh and then they do nothing amazing. And so work through it, think through it, process through it. And the question that we have to deal with is is this story just to show us another miracle? It's like miracle after miracle. Is this just another miracle where, hey, Jesus can raise the dead, he can calm the storms, and he can feed a lot of people? Or is there something else? What's the purpose? Because this story is in all four Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the story is very similar. And in John, it's similar as well, but just a few added words and thoughts. But there's one thing that's in every gospel, and it's the ending, where it says, at the end, the disciples went around and collected up 12 baskets of leftovers. And there's a lot of ways you can understand what's being said there. True, it's being said that Jesus is the bread of life, and he is the one that sustains God's people, and that the 12 baskets represents the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God. But I think it may also be something even more, and I think that it may be sort of a slap in the face or a wake-up call to the disciples. As they're going around, and they're picking up the, the leftovers, and they realize one, two, three, twelve. And then they look at themselves, and it's like, twelve. And they're assessing and analyzing the way in which they responded to the crowd versus how Jesus responded to the crowd And they're realizing that maybe Jesus was doing this miracle to teach them something as well and to show them something, and not just them, but us. Because I think it's clear that the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of the kingdom, is word and deed ministry. We see that all throughout. Jesus forgives the sins of the lame man, he tells him to walk. He heals people. Then he says, repent and believe. Word and deed, compassion and conversation, physical need and spiritual need are always put together. It's not one or the other. It's not social justice alone, and it's not verbal proclamation of the gospel of alone. It's together. And we know that, and we believe that, and we say, yes, that's how we live as a church and how we live as Christians, but it's easy to say that it's harder to live it. Mother Teresa said something that stuck with me. She says, it's fashionable to talk about the poor, but it's not as fashionable to talk to the poor. And I think that's true with a lot of things. It's fashionable to talk about the way in which we live as Christians. It's easy to agree intellectually. It's a lot harder to live it. It's a lot harder to to live the way that Jesus did in response here. And I think the answer and to how we live compassionate, empathetic lives is by looking at the response that the disciples have to the crowd versus the response that Jesus has to the crowd. The disciples look at the crowd and they say, they're hungry, we're hungry, they're tired, I feel bad for them, but I'm sure if we just tell them to go, they could find food. They'll figure out somewhere to stay, everything will be okay. Okay. They sympathize with them in their hunger. Jesus looks at them and he says, They're hungry. What's that like? I'm hungry. I understand. We are going to feed them, we are capable of feeding them. He empathizes with them on something that we may think is trivial. They're hungry for a meal. Even in the trivial thing, he empathizes. You see, there's a a difference that I think is being brought out here between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is emotion. Empathy is emotion that leads to action. Sympathy makes you feel something. And that's not bad. But empathy takes that feeling and it causes you to ask yourself, what can I do? Here's an example. If you've been to Haiti, if you've been to maybe another third world country on a mission trip— There's two responses I typically see. One is sympathy, one is empathy. Here's sympathy. I could never imagine what it's like to live in this situation, to have a house that is eight feet by eight feet held up by sticks and a tin roof. I could never imagine what it's like for my hair to begin to turn orange because I'm malnourished or not know what it's like to be able to feed my kids or where I'm going to get money from. Graduate high school and that I'll probably never get a job because it's about 85% unemployment. I don't understand, and I feel really bad for them, but it's made me really thankful and grateful that I'm blessed and that I live in America and that I have what I have. It's not wrong, but empathy takes it a step further. Empathy says, I can never imagine. It must be so hard, and the hopelessness and what they're feeling, and I am grateful for the blessings that God has given me, but what can I do? How can I help how can I understand? How can I be as- alongside them? There's a big difference between the two because empathy feels the emotion but it takes it into action. Because I think empathy does 3 things. It takes the perspective of others as their truth. It does so without judgment. And then it seeks to recognize and to admit that it recognizes the emotion that the person feels. And that's hard to do, and it's vulnerable. It's a lot harder to be empathetic than it is to be sympathetic. It's a lot harder because it's demanding of your time, it's inconvenient, and it's often really dirty to be empathetic. Roman Krizneric, a 21st century philosopher, says this about empathy and sympathy. He says, If you see a homeless person living under a bridge, you may feel sorry for him, and give him some money as you pass by. That is pity or sympathy, not empathy if on the other hand you make an effort to look at the world through his eyes to consider what life is really like for him and perhaps have a conversation that transforms him from a faceless stranger into a unique individual then you are emphasizing empathy is is not seen i think in our culture with the same frequency as sympathy because it's a lot harder Sympathy is raising over a billion dollars, which is wonderful for Haiti after the earthquake through Red Cross. Empathy is giving of your money, but also asking, how can I give time and how can I give my skill if I'm able? Sympathy looks at the homeless man or woman that you meet and you see every day and gives them some money, which is good. But empathy says, can I buy you a meal and have a conversation? Sympathy looks at your coworker or your neighbor and and feels bad for the marital struggles that they have, the financial issues that they've shared, or maybe just the way that they look when they come to work every day because you know that they're suffering. Empathy says, can we go to lunch? Can we get coffee after work? I just want to listen. And so I think the question I've been asking myself when I was working on this passage in personal worship is, why am I not empathetic in the way that I should be? Why are we so often sympathetic instead of empathetic? And I think the answer lies in the fact that we, as a culture, maybe you resonate with this, we silver lining and we justify everything. Here are a few ways. I think we look at homelessness and and we maybe say, homelessness is a choice, or it's laziness, or they they take advantage of kind-hearted giving. Or we say, well, you know, at least they have programs in soup kitchens. Or we look at the poor in america and we said well the poor in america aren't really poor have you seen the real poor in other countries plus they have welfare they have food stamps they have all types of programs and a lot of them take advantage of it and at least they live in a country that gives them opportunity or we look at racial injustice and we say i think it's overblown And, and, and don't we know that all people are racist and at least they live in a country that is free and is better than most and I think we don't only do this with just big social issues where we sympathize or just kind of throw out instead of empathize. We do it with small things. And especially as Christians, we do it with individuals. And don't get upset at me for saying this, please. But I think we Romans 828 people in a non-genuine way. We come along people that are suffering or we talk with someone, we see someone that's suffering, friend, coworker, neighbor, maybe even a stranger, and we just say, God's going to work all things for good and it's not really genuine, and we just kind of throw it out there so we can kind of give our advice and let them know that we kind of care, but then we don't have to actually get involved. Or we say, I'm going to pray for you, and then we never do. Or we say, God's in control. Or we say, God won't give you more than you can handle, and they're sitting there like, yeah, but what I'm handling is horrible. Or we say, you know, in a few years, you're going to look back and be thankful. See, these things aren't wrong. They're not Not true. They're not not biblical, but they're not appropriate in the way that we use them. And they're often used in the way to make us distance ourselves from those suffering. We give them the Christian one liners. So we don't actually have to get dirty with them. We don't actually have to cry with them. We can just give them what maybe we've been given. And the question is would Jesus respond the same way to individual suffering, or to homelessness, or to racism, or to poverty? Because he didn't in this passage. And he doesn't ever. The disciples do. The disciples feel sympathy. Jesus empathizes. And praise God that he does. And Jesus doesn't differentiate between who he, empath- he empathizes with, right? This crowd is a diverse crowd men, women, children, rich, poor, those termed clean and those termed unclean. He feeds them all. Everyone receives the mercy and the message of Christ and praise God, and be thankful that Jesus, our God, did not just sympathize with you. He didn't look at you. He didn't look at me and say, man, he's really messing it up. Doesn't he know that that choice is going to result in that, and that pain, and that suffering, and you know, he doesn't even understand, but he's on a freight train that's heading to eternal torment. That's so terrible. I feel so bad for him. Instead, he became us. Philippians says this, This is the power of empathy. This is true empathy. He was in the form of God and did not not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus didn't just sympathize with us. He became us. He suffered like us and for us and cries and feels the pain that we feel and took on not only our perspective but our humanity. That's the height of empathy. I want to read you an excerpt from a book called Unapologetic that I think puts it really well. It's about Jesus and it says that the crowd was saying to him, Yeshua is a joke. He's less a messiah. He's more a patch of something nasty on the pavement. And as he struggles on, Jesus recognizes every roaring and jeering face. He knows our names. He knows our histories. And since as well as being weak and frightened, he's also the love that makes the world, to whom all times and places are equally present he, is just feel, he, is, he isn't just feeling the anger and spite and an unbearable self-disgust of one crowd on that Friday morning in Palestine. He's turning his bruised face towards the whole human crowd, past and present and to come, and accepting everything we have to throw at him, everything we fear we deserve ourselves. The door of his heart is wedged open, and in rushes the whole pestilential flood, the vile and the rolling tides of cruelties and failures and secrets. Let me take that from you, he is saying. Give that to me instead. Let me carry it. Let me be to blame instead. I am big enough. I am wide enough. I am not what you were told. And he goes on taking it in. It's not what he does. It's what he is. He is all open door to sorrow, suffering, guilt, despair, horror, everything we cannot escape. And he does not even try to escape it. He turns to meet it. And he claims it as his own. That's Jesus. That's the gospel. That's empathy. He claims your suffering and your sin as his own. And the question for us that we have to walk away with as we contemplate Jesus and we look at his Empathy for even something that we would say is trivial, like missing a meal and being hungry. That he takes the pain and the struggle of others on himself. He stands with them. Do we do that? Do we carry and seek to carry the heavy burden and the load that others in our life that God puts before us, family members, friends, neighbors, co workers, do we seek to help carry that? Do we cry and suffer when they suffer? Or do we try to escape it? Because Jesus models for us the way in which we're called to live as Christians, which is we are to claim the suffering of others as our own. We suffer together. We are one body. And God has put people in your life to empathize with, to come alongside and to claim what they're going through as your own. The beginning part of Philippians tells us that. Right before I read what Jesus did before for us, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look, each of you, not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. So the question is, as we deal with this passage, is that this miracle was for us as well. For us to ask our questions, do we see it? Do we see the heart of our Savior and are we modeling it? Because if we did, things would be different. Let's pray. God, we thank you, first off, that you're gracious and you are patient with us. God, we are selfish. We are sympathetic and often not empathetic. Lord, we have a hard time Claiming suffering of others as our own because it's dirty and it's inconvenient. It demands our time. It's hard. And God, we pray that you would give us grace. That you would not only show us truth, but you would give us the ability to live that truth out, to be like you. Thank you for empathizing with us. Thank you for coming alongside us in our suffering and our pain and taking it on yourself. May we be that light and that message and that example to those in our life and to our city. God, help us. Teach us, show us. Let us know that we're not condemned by you, but we are charged by you to go out and to live the way that you lived. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.